You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning. Great to see everybody this morning. As mentioned, my name is Rob. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. Jason mentioned earlier something called a fall break. Well, this is Jason's fall break. Um, And uh, I have an opportunity to share uh, the message with you uh, this morning. We also, with Jason taking a fall break, we get a break from Luke chapter 9. So if you uh, were excited about Luke chapter 9, come back next week. We'll be back, uh, Lord willing, in Luke, but uh, this morning we're going to be in Matthew. The passage that Jerry just read from Matthew 28 is known as the Great Commission. It's something that when I read uh, this book here by J.I. Packer a number of years ago, this book is called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's kind of a heady book. It's not necessarily an easy read, but I was just struck with this concept of the Great Commission, and it's been kind of uh, nagging at me, if you will, the spirit. And so I wrote some things down, and I told Jason that if he needed an opportunity to break, I'd be glad to share a message. I, I had no idea that it would be this soon, so, uh, but here we are. So if you're here this morning and you are a regular church attender, you may have heard the Great Commission preached once, twice, ten times uh, over the course of your time in church. Um, you may be here this morning and you are now hearing for the very first time that Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is known as the Great Commission. So wherever you are on that spectrum, uh, what I can offer you is this is the first time that I have preached Matthew 28, 16 through 20, so we are all in this together uh, for the first time. So I'm going to pray. And then we'll jump in to the text this morning. Lord, what an awesome day. It's beautiful to come together in your house to praise you and worship you. And I don't know what is on everybody's minds this morning. I don't know what troubles have have weighed you down. But my prayer is for all of us that at this point in time, we can just set those aside we can, we can fix our eyes on the cross. We can open up our ears and, and engage our brains and open our hearts to the words that, that you have in store. I pray that the words that I speak are the exact words that somebody here needs to hear and that I just channel them through you. I thank you for this opportunity. And I pray this in the name above all names, that of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if I was to ask us, don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but ask uh, you how many of you belong to a group or an organization, most of us would probably raise our hands. 
If you are a member of grace, that in and of itself is an organization. You belong to grace, and so you're part of an organization. Groups and organizations are formed around a common core of beliefs or ideals or principles or values which govern or directs the purpose or the function of the group or or organization, right? A common set of beliefs bring you together, like-minded people, and a set of principles that people adhere to. Churches aren't any different, and here at Grace, uh, we're not any different either. We have a set of common beliefs and values, which we refer to as our doctrine. Now, that's kind of an academic word, but in essence, it is our foundational belief that we hold true, and that directs all that we do here at the church. And our doctrine is not something that a few of us sat in the back room and said, hey, what do you want to believe in today? Okay, let's hear it. This sounds good. No, rather what we do is we pull our doctrinal out of the scripture itself, which is the ultimate authority in all of our lives. Now, one of our beliefs, one of our core beliefs that we here at Grace have is that the Bible is the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, I apologize for dropping churchy SAT words on you so early on a Sunday morning, but infallibility and inerrancy are similar words but mean something slightly different. They'll be up, uh, definitions will be up on the screen here shortly. But infallibility means absolutely trustworthy or sure. There is no doubt that the truth is there. And inerrancy means that it is lack of error. There are no mistakes, no contradictions in Scripture. So what we hold true to believe is this is true and it's accurate. And we have no reason to question that. Now, it shouldn't be difficult for us to say, yep, this part of doctrine is, is believable. And why? Because in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the first part of the, the verse, Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. And he continues on the reason for that. Some translation says all scripture is God-breathed, and some translations say is breathed out by God. I kind of like that translation. But the concept here is that God was ultimately the author of Scripture, that while human hands, human authors wrote it, some 40 or so authors, we believe that God is the ultimate uh, author of the Word, either directly in the Old Testament where we see him talking through the prophets or talking them directly to Moses, or by Jesus when we, they record his words in the New Testament, or under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, illuminating and inspiring the minds of the human writers of the Bible. And while the word inerrancy and infallibility are kind of 19th or 20th century words, the concept of God's truth extends all the way back to really New Testament times. An early church leader named Clement of Rome, who was from Rome, uh, rumor has it that he actually, Peter, ordained him into the ministry, but he wrote this about Scripture, nothing iniquitous or falsified is written. 
he had a fancy vocabulary as well. Iniquitous basically means without sin. So he's saying there's nothing false in Scripture. And the key here is he wrote this in about 90 A.D., which within a few couple of, at the same time or shortly thereafter, the New Testament or parts of the New Testament were written. Several hundred years later, the great theologian Augustine stated this, I believe most firmly that none of these authors of Scripture have, has erred in any respect of writing. So in essence, these two men confer that Scripture is without error. And to question the validity of Scripture with God as the author would then say that we are questioning or we believe we have a God that could make a mistake or would purposely make a mistake. And that goes completely opposite of the divine nature uh, of God and what we believe of God. So therefore, we completely believe that the Bible is true and accurate and free of error. It's a foundational doctrine. And this is one of the doctrines that if we, when we're early in our faith and saved, we can kind of say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Bible's true. I got it. And then as we start digging into Scripture, we eventually get to the point where we discover mistakes and contradictions in Scripture. Now, wait a minute. I just said there can't be mistakes and contradictions, and that is true. So they appear to be mistakes or contradictions. You may have come across some of these. Here's some examples. It appears that the creation story we find in Genesis 1 differs from that in Genesis 2. We see that Jesus' genealogy differs between the account in Matthew and Luke. We see the names of the disciples vary depending on the account, and how they were called in the ministry varies depending on the account. And the events that we see surrounding resurrection morning seem to differ as you look at the different accounts. So how do we handle that? Well, we can eliminate, if this was a multiple choice test, option C is mistake in scripture. Now now we'll throw that one out because that is not true. So as we look to untackle these, most of these apparent contradictions can be cleared up with just a little bit of cross-referencing and further study. And while I certainly don't have time to dig or unpack what uh, this list I'm about to show you, I didn't want to leave you hanging here. So uh, up on the screen, there's going to be a couple things that we can do to make sure that we resolve these issues and apparently, or apparently contradiction and errors. So first of all, some of these may be due to paraphrasing or interpretation. And we simply need to look at a different interpretation, a different version of Scripture, ensure that what we're looking at has not been paraphrased. Some of the issues may be with abbreviations or omissions from the particular text that we are looking at. In some cases, the events are the same. They've just been reordered in time. So there is no difference, actually. It's just the sequencing appears to be different. And then also, similar events are often reported from a different point of view. Two people can experience the same event and highlight different aspects of it. It's the same event. Again, don't have time to unpack all of these, but these, by using these principles, 
we can clear up most of what we find to be an apparent contradiction or error in Scripture. However, in some cases, the Scripture itself just doesn't seem to make sense. It appears on the surface to contradict itself and cannot be solved with any change in translation, any kind of further uh, paraphrasing changes. And when we find these in Scripture, these are known as paradoxes. Okay, that's my, one more churchy word after paradox. But paradox, a definition of a paradox, and I'm using the Oxford Dictionary because I love the way the British capture this. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition which, when investigated, may prove to be well-founded or true. We find paradoxes throughout Scripture, uh, mainly in the New Testament, some in Proverbs, and they're actually there on purpose. Jesus was paradoxical in his preaching. He used parables, but he also used paradoxes, as did other New Testament writers. A few examples. In Mark, we find this. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last. Wait a minute, okay. Jesus says, uh, Paul says in Corinthians, when I'm weak, then I am strong. In Philippians, Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. We see Paul saying, in order to be free, I had to become a slave. These are contradictions and appear to be errors in Scripture. They're not. One final one, we see Jesus say in Luke chapter 9, so don't worry, we're still in Luke chapter 9 here. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me saves it. So they seem to be contradictions, but they're actually not. They are paradoxes. They're on purpose, and their exact intent is to get us to go, what's going on here? Let's dig in a little bit more. And we can determine if there are paradoxes if you can solve it by just amplifying or adding to it as a way of explanation. So staying in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, we might say this to explain it. If a person wants to hold on to earthly things in order to save himself or herself and is not willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, he or she will lose their life, eternal life. But anybody who is willing to sacrifice earthly comforts for the sake of Christ, potentially even lose their life, will gain a heavenly life. That kind of clears it up. And so by using amplification, we can add to it, and we can say, oh, that's a paradox. Catchy little term, we amplify it out, and it makes sense. It clears it up. There is no contradiction in that case. But there are a few places in Scripture where we come across something that truly does not make any sense, and no means of trying to amplify or look at the uh, cross-definition or paraphrase seem to clear it up. Here's a few examples. In Scripture, the Bible says faith is an act of man. Okay. The Bible says faith is a gift of God. 
Okay, wait a minute. Act of man, yes. Gift of God, yes. The incarnation in and of itself is something. So Scripture tells us Jesus is fully human. Scripture tells us Jesus is fully God. Fully human, yes. Fully God, yes. That's something that uh, Charles Wesley wrestled with, this concept of the incarnation, how an infinite God could become a finite person. And maybe the one that we wrestle with the most is the Trinity, the triune nature of our God. We have a God with three persons. Okay, three gods. No, one God, three distinct individuals, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all seemingly with unique and different powers, yet all the same in terms of power and unity. And these instances that we find in Scripture that are confusing are referred to as, last church word, an antimony. An antimony. It's the last one unless I get on a roll. So, uh, but I think that's it. So by definition, an antimony is used to designate when a conflict of two laws, when two opposing, mutually exclusive views that oppose one another are come together, you have an antimony. Now, that's kind of, a, again, one of those uh, difficult words. Here's a better word for it. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. We just don't understand. But we, uh, wait a minute, you got to have an answer here. There needs to be an answer here. And I say to that, okay, here's your answer. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Now, those of you who might know that verse are going to say those verses, come on, Rob, that's a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. It is what God is saying. So, uh, be up on the screen. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God is saying this through the prophet Isaiah. He says, for my thoughts, meaning God's, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But we get frustrated with that, right? Well, we got to know the answer to this. I'm not sure why. For those of you who, who know us, uh, my wife and I, we have a golden retriever. Um, her name is Nora the dog. Actually, her name is Nora. But when we started our community group, the Rose were part of our community group, and their daughter, Nora, would come over, and she was a little bit younger, and so she was a little confused why we were telling her to quit begging and to lie down. And similarly, our Nora the dog couldn't figure out why she needed to use a napkin and put her plate in the trash. So to be clear, we started saying things like, Nora the dog, sit. Nora the dog, quit begging. And, and the Rose have long since left and launched out and have their own group. And, but to this day, we still refer to our dog as Nora the Dog. That's her full name. Or Nora T-Dog for short. So Nora the Dog's smart. She's not well trained, but that's, that's my fault. But she's, she's pretty smart. She understands the word treat. She understands the word cheese, which happens to be her favorite Treat. She understands the word taco because every Saturday morning she gets to ride in the truck with me to go get breakfast tacos. And she can count to six. 
because when our grandfather clock chimes six, regardless of the day, she knows it's time for me to get up and take her for a walk. She knows the word for walk as well. But as smart as Nora the dog is, if I sat down with her and said, okay, let's talk about the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, she's not going to understand that. She'll probably wag her tail if I say it nice enough. And we look at that and we say, well, of course not. Of course she couldn't understand that. She's a dog. But in the same vein, we wrestle with the fact that the God who created the universe and all things in it, the God who placed all the stars in the sky and knows every one of them by name, we don't think that he might know just a little bit more than us, might understand just a bit more than us. I'm grateful that I have a God that's a whole lot smarter than me. And so when we view these, we can say, okay, it's a mystery. And we just have to accept that. So at this point, you're, you may be asking, what in the world do golden retrievers and antimonies have to do with the Great Commission? And I'm glad you asked that. Actually, there's nothing to do with golden retrievers, so... We're done with golden retrievers. But as far as antimonies go, the reason why Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is many biblical scholars look at that scripture and consider it to be an antimony, one of the greatest mysteries in all of scripture. Do we see it? Do we understand it? I'm not sure, so let's unpack it and see if we can discover why. So Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, will be up on the screen here in a minute. What we see is, starting in verse 16, well, first to recap, Christ has died, was resurrected. He appeared to some and then to many. Uh, and we see different accounts. And in Matthew, towards the end, we see that Jesus has summoned his disciples out to the mountain in Galilee. And so in verse 16, it says, The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. Now recall, Judas committed suicide, so there's still only 11 disciples. They have not selected the replacement for Judas yet. So we see these 11 disciples. There may have been additional people, but we know at least they traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, meaning Jesus, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, we don't have time to dig into that, but that right there is a message for another day. You've seen the risen Christ, and you're still doubting it. But here's the key. Verse 18, then Jesus came near to them, came near and said to them, all authority, let me stop there. Now, you're thinking, great, it took you 15 minutes to get here, and you're stopping after two words. But these are two key words we need to understand. So first of all, let's start with authority. Authority is probably one that we have no problems understanding. When I say the word authority, someone likely comes to mind. A father, a boss, a teacher, a coach, a law enforcement agent, an elected official, somebody that is in charge. And oftentimes, we see the word power used to define authority. So in essence... We can use power, we can use authority. Kind of understand that concept. So how about the word all? All power, all authority. And I'm not sure we really understand this. So let me, let me use an illustration here in order to try to emphasize this word all. And in this case, I'm going to use a little 
pizza theology. So let's say you leave here and you go to Mod Pizza. No, no product endorsement from here, but you can do a lot worse than Mod Pizza. And you have a Mod Pizza sitting in front of you. You can grasp the concept of the pizza, right? Because it's all right in front of you. And in my case, I'm going to eat it all. And if you have a couple of pizzas at the table, you can probably grasp the concept of, yeah, all the pizzas that are at that table. But how about all the pizzas that will be made at Mod Pizza that day? Okay, that's a little harder to grasp. How about all the pizzas made at all the pizza places in the state of Texas, in the U.S.? Think about pizzas pretty worldwide. All the pizzas being made in a single day around the world. Oh, no, I can't possibly grasp that. For some of you, you're like, man, that's a great thing to think about, but can't grasp that. Why? It's an infinite thing in our finite minds. So when we talk here, when Jesus says all authority, that's pizza and that's everything else around pizza. It's the everything of the everything, the all of the all. It's, we can say all, you know, we can say it with a deeper voice. It is everything. It is the infinite nature of God. It's it's the supremacy of God. God. So Jesus is saying he has complete and total power and authority over everything. And where does he have all that power and authority? In heaven and on earth. Where's that? That's everywhere. Anywhere you can think of. He has all power and all authority over everywhere. And I, and I shared earlier, for the first time I was sharing this this morning, what immediately came to my mind was that song, he's got the whole world in his hand. That's what it is. Jesus has all authority and all power, this omniscient and omnipotent God. No, I'm sorry, church words there. So he has a plan. He has a plan to spread the good news. And here it is. He's about to lay this out. And knowing him... This is going to be awesome. Probably some water walking in here. Maybe some demon casting. Raising the dead. Maybe that miracle Baptist churches don't talk about, turning water into wine. It's going to be awesome. Here's his plan. Verse 19. He says, I'm going to go into all nations. Uh, Wait a minute. That's not what it says. It says, go, therefore, into all nations. Oh, hang on a sec. Who's he talking to here? Well, at this point in time, he's talking to the 11 disciples. But by extension, he's talking to anybody who is a Christian, any believer. That means he's talking to you. And he's talking to me. Oh, hang on a second. So, so what you're saying, all-powerful God, you want me, Rob Walter, to go. That's not a good plan. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know about all of you. You guys might be ultimately qualified for this, but I know me, and that's not a good plan. 
But, as a good friend of mine would say, it's worse than that. Continuing on, Jesus says, go therefore and what? Make disciples, okay, I don't know what that means, of all nations or to the end of the world, baptizing them, okay, I've never done that before, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe everything I've commanded to you. Oh my goodness, I'm not good at any one of those things. Why are you saying that I'm the one that has to go and do it? That makes no sense. And that is why scholars point to how an all-powerful God wants to use not-powerful people in order to spread the good news. It's a mystery that may never be revealed to us, but it's a mystery right here in front of us. But we need to be careful when we look at this that we don't miss the fact that while the why, why Jesus would solve, come up with this plan is a mystery, the what is not. The what is very clear. The first thing we see that is clear that this is a command. Therefore, go, or go, therefore. This is a task, not an ask. This is direction, not a suggestion. This is a command, not a, well, if you can. We are directed to go. And the second thing that's very clear here is when we go, when we get there, there should be no mystery of what we're supposed to be doing when we get there. No, it says very clearly, make disciples, baptize, and teach. No mysteries there. So I don't know if you've ever sat around and thought this or been around somebody that, that was, said something similar, said something along these lines. You know, I just, I, I wonder what God has in store for me. Right here. You don't have to look far. You may be saying, well, you know, God wants to use me somehow. Right here. It's very clear. There's no mystery there. And when all of a sudden we, we grasp the concept of, well, I don't know why, but I now see what the what is here. We all get a case of the yabbits. You know what the yabbits are? Well, yeah, but it looks something like this. Yeah, I see you're telling me to go, but, you know, I'm really doing well in school. I like my college, um, my house, my family's settled. Hey, you, you provided all that. I go to a great church. Hey, I, I even lead a community group. This is just not a good time for me, Lord. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to make disciples, but, man, that's really time-consuming. And my schedule, whew, it's booked. It's, it's booked solid. I just don't have time to make this, this pouring out stuff. Don't have time. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to baptize, but, man, I just have a hard time memorizing Scripture. And I think if I was out there in the, in the water and it would be like buried to something and raised to walk, I don't think I'd, I'd probably mess that up. And besides, that's what we pay the pastor to do, right, to baptize 
yeah, I know I'm supposed to teach, but here's the thing. I just don't really know Scripture all that well. I, I just really, I'm just not where I need to be to teach. We all have yabbits. What are yours? We actually, though, we find yabbits throughout Scripture of individuals who have questioned God's plans and direction. So this is, this is not a new thing. For example, Moses said, Yeah, I know I'm supposed to go face Pharaoh, but he's a very powerful man, and I don't speak very well. Jonah says, Yeah, I know you want me to go to Nineveh, but I don't really want to go to Nineveh, and said, I think I'm going to go to Spain. King David said, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be out leading my army, but I'm going to sit this one out, hang around the palace. What could possibly go wrong? The rich young ruler says, yeah, but man, it's a lot of money. If you're familiar, Ananias and Sapphira say, yeah, I know we said we'd give all the money to the church, but we're going to hold a little bit back for ourselves and, you know, a little white lie never hurt anyone. And probably the most infamous of the Yabbats, Adam and Eve say, yeah, but, man, that fruit looks good. What are your Yabbats? See, the problem is when we apply our Yabbats, what we're saying is, God, I don't trust your plan. God, I don't like your plan. God, I don't want to follow your plan. God, I have a better plan. One that I, yeah, this, I'm grasping this. I'm going to do good things. We're saying, we got this, God. I got my own plan. Don't worry about me. I can understand my plan. I can control my plan. But we also see another kind of yabbit in Scripture as well. And these yabbits are, are opposite. For example, Abraham says, yeah, you blessed us with our son. And now you're telling me to sacrifice him? But I trust in what you're telling me. We have Isaiah that says, yeah, I am a man of unclean lips. I am not worthy to be in your presence, but here I am, Lord, send me. We have all the disciples saying, yeah, we had our lives and our families and everything else, but when Jesus says, follow me, we followed, we left it, we followed him. The apostle Paul says, yeah, I was, I was putting Christians to death, but Jesus called me and now I will preach the gospel across all nations. And even Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane said, yeah, I don't want to go through what I'm about to go through. But not my will, yours. So which side are you on your yabbits? I can't answer that for you. But as you reflect on this passage and you reflect on your response... Let me just offer a couple of things to consider 
And this is coming from a recovering yabiter. Not there yet, still working on it. But here's a couple things to consider. When we look at the concept of going, oftentimes we focus on the end state. We see the ends of the world, the all nations, and we come up with the most extreme example that we can think of, right? We say, well, you couldn't possibly send me to the Congo. You couldn't possibly send me to China. Lord, it'd be crazy if you sent me to Iran. You can't possibly want me there. We all probably have that ends of the, the, the most radical thing they can think of. For me, it's, a, it's the country of Burundi in Africa. I don't have time to explain why. You can ask me afterwards. So I'm saying, God, you can't possibly want me to go to Burundi, but here's the thing. Focus less on the destination and more on the act of going and accepting that command. Because here's the thing. There's a lot of places. There's a lot of ends of the earth There's a lot of all nations between Salado, Texas, and Burundi, Africa. And so if I say, yep, God, here I'm here to go, and I think it's Burundi, and Burundi's roughly in this direction, and I say go, and I take a step, God might say, oh, hey, stop, you're right where I want you to be now. Well, that's great, I didn't have to go very far. Or he may say, keep going. Focus on the commitment, the submission to go. We look at the concept of time. Man, we just don't have time to do all this good stuff. Well, at some point, why don't you spend time with the one who created time to ask to help you with your time management? We, we lean on our inability to memorize Scripture. Just ah, I just can't do it. And yet most of us can probably have a favorite movie quote from 20 years ago that you can whip out just like that. Your favorite recipe? And don't raise your hand, but how many of you can tell me exactly how many points your fantasy football team has scored for you this week? We can memorize stuff. Focus on on that. And we often use an excuse that we don't know Scripture enough to teach If that's your excuse, raise your hand and say, let me teach. Let me preach. Why? The best way to get to know Scripture is to teach it or to preach it. I can't answer the question for you where you're at on this. It's not a mystery. Yeah, why? I, I don't know, but what Jesus expects from us is not and there's one more thing that is, that is very clear. And we often miss this as well because we get too wrapped up around the weird country I have to go to and all the things I have to do that I don't know how to do. But we miss this at the very end. Back to Matthew 28, verse 20. Jesus finished teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember... I am with you always to the end of the age. Wait, who's saying this? Jesus is saying, hey, don't forget, I am with you forever. That's great news. Jesus is with us. So when we go, he's with us. Yes, 
When we don't know what we're doing with discipleship, Jesus is with us? Yes. When we can't figure out how to do baptism, Jesus is with us? Yes. Here to teach. He's right there with us. That should be a great comfort. That should be like, okay, I had some reservations, but I'm going to set aside my yabbit, and I'm going to follow your guy in your direction, Lord, and the comfort knowing is, you're right there with me. There is no mistake. We don't have to question it. We know it to be true. And we also should know there is no mystery in that. Let us pray. Lord, I, I'm not sure you could have picked somebody that was less qualified to teach this. I am a professional yabiter. My prayer for me and for all of us is that we can look at this and we can set aside anything that we object to and we can accept the fact that, yes, Lord, send me. And I don't know where that's going to lead you. It may lead you to the person sitting next to you in the pew. It may lead you to your family. It may lead you to your community group. But wherever it leads you, I just pray that we can rejoice that the God of the universe wants to use us as part of his ministry. That's great news. That's great joy. And we're so grateful for that. We thank you for this. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.